This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. This episode is about Dom Perignon, Champagne, and what both of them have to teach us about the Catholic faith. Have you heard of Dom Perignon? You might recognize the name as a high-end champagne, but Dom Perignon was a real person. In fact, he was a Catholic monk who lived about 300 years ago in the Champagne region of France, an hour east of Paris by train. Dom Pierre Perignon was the cellar master of his abbey, Olvier, charged with producing, storing, and keeping track of the abbey's wines. He developed techniques that improve the quality of their wine and is sometimes called the father of champagne. Many years ago, my sister and I went on a pilgrimage through much of France, visiting a number of holy sites. As we were making our way back towards Paris at the end of the trip, we stopped in the Champagne region and visited the Abbey Church and Dom Perignon's tomb. He's buried in the floor of the center aisle, right up by the altar. The tombstone mentions his work as cellar master for 47 years, for which he received highest praise. But it also states that he was full of virtue and love for the poor. And you can't miss the irony. Today, the label that carries Dom Perignon's name is produced by Moet & Chandon, itself part of Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton, one of the largest purveyors of luxury goods in the world. Champagne nowadays conveys an image of wealth and prestige, the result of decades of successful marketing. But the Champagne region isn't like that at all. It's filled with quaint and quiet villages, farming communities for whom wine with bubbles, not from a big company, but from their own fields, is just an everyday drink at dinnertime, and sometimes even at breakfast. It wasn't uncommon for shopkeepers to offer us a small glass when we came in, Nothing fancy, just a gesture of hospitality. Most people generally reserve champagne for New Year's Eve and special occasions. But I remember my sister and I were at a local restaurant and all you heard the whole time was corks popping. Everyone was drinking champagne. And why not? After all, any time we're enjoying a meal with people we love should be a cause for celebration. As I left Dom Perignon's tomb, after praying for his eternal rest, I was struck by the fact that this monk, who was poor and loved the poor, today wouldn't be able to afford the very wine that bears his name. People might actually be surprised to learn that this wine owes its origins to a man who devoted his life to God and the Church. But Dom Perignon stands as a symbol, in the first place, of the relationship between Catholicism and wine. After all, our central act of worship, the Mass, needs wine. That's what led the monks of Burgundy to refine each plot of land to cultivate the best grapes, and what led the Spanish missionaries to plant the first vineyards in California. Because it's not just any other drink. 
We don't use wine at Mass arbitrarily. Jesus himself at the Last Supper didn't use wine arbitrarily. It's not as though any type of drink would have sufficed. In fact, all through Jewish tradition, wine has a special significance. But to understand that, we need to look past the label and get to the heart of the story. It's no accident that Jesus' first miracle was to make wine. We hear about it in the second chapter of St. John's Gospel. Jesus, his mother Mary, and some of his first disciples are guests at a wedding in the town of Cana. All of a sudden, there's a terrible embarrassment. There's no more wine. Mary intercedes on behalf of the couple with her son, who instructs the waiters to fill some jars with water. Well, not only did the water become wine, but it was the best wine they tasted. St. John notes that the new disciples, seeing this first sign, began to believe in Jesus. There's a lot more going on here than we might at first realize. Jesus is sending a message by beginning his public ministry with this sign. You see, in the Old Testament, God's relationship with his people, Israel, is compared to a marriage, a permanent and faithful union. The problem is that time and again, Israel was not faithful. She would worship pagan gods instead of the one true God. The most famous example is probably at Mount Sinai, when they worshiped the golden calf. God had just delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and yet they still betray him. That unfaithfulness is compared to adultery. Wine becomes a part of the picture because it's a symbol of marriage. It stands for the whole wedding banquet. When Israel turns away from God, the prophets tell us that there's no more wine. They're saying the marriage is over. Well, now at Cana, there's wine once again. Jesus is starting to heal the broken marriage. What Jesus began at Cana culminates on the cross, in his passion, from the Latin word for suffering. But that involves another transformation. At Cana, Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. At the Last Supper, he takes wine and turns it into his own blood, the blood that he sheds for us to pay the price for our sins and bring us back into the marriage. That's the same blood we drink at Mass, the communion we receive. Think about it. Jesus gives us his very self, his body and blood, to unite himself to us. It's an image of marriage. That's why the Church is called the Bride of Christ. But in marriage, both husband and wife have to give themselves entirely to each other. Jesus gives himself to us on the cross, in the blood he pours out for us and gives to us, to have union with us. But what about us? How do we uphold our end, give ourselves to God, and share in his death and resurrection? Well, wine offers some insight for us as well. Let's look at the Passion. The Roman poet Virgil wrote, Bacchus amat coles, or Bacchus loves the hills. Bacchus was the Roman god of wine, and Virgil's saying that grapes that grow on hillsides make the best wine. There's a larger point here. The best wine comes from grapes that struggle. When you have grapes in a low-lying valley with plenty of water, it makes them fat with diluted flavor. Instead, the hillside doesn't retain as much water, which forces the roots to go deep, extracting flavor from the soil and concentrating the juice. 
Only through this struggle, this suffering, do they achieve the goal for which they were planted. Isn't that true of everything in life? Anything worthwhile takes effort and struggle. Whether it's learning a new language or training for a marathon, the easy way out or the shortcut is always alluring, but we just end up cheating ourselves. The same is true in our spiritual life. We're always inclined to take the easy road or cut corners or put our own desires first. Those are all the effects of original sin. At the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we hear the serpent's false promise to Adam and Eve. He tells them, just eat this fruit and you will be like God, if only it were that easy. That's why Catholics practice what we call mortification. Little sacrifices. Think of the things we give up in Lent. To train ourselves. If I'm strong enough to resist that piece of chocolate, I'm much more likely to say no when something far more serious comes along. Some temptation to sin that's much worse for me than chocolate. We don't want to be lazy grapes, fat and flavorless, who don't have what it takes to go the distance. And what is that distance? Well, let's continue up that hill, like Jesus did with his cross, as the passion leads to his death. When the grapes are just right, when they've struggled just long enough, they die. At harvest time, it's called the crush. And I'm reminded of the verse from the prophet Isaiah that we hear every year on Good Friday. He was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Winemakers refer to the grape's skin being broken and its blood running out. In a way, it really mirrors the passion and death of Jesus. And to carry the analogy a little further, when all the crushing is done, the juice is put into barrels or vats and buried underground. After enough time has passed for fermentation and aging, that same juice is brought up, resurrected if you will, but now it's totally transformed. It's something far more glorious than what it was before. Can we even recognize it as the grape it once was? We can understand the continuum, but really only in hindsight. It exists now on such a higher plane. It actually reminds me a lot of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. If you read the Gospel accounts, it's incredible how so many of the disciples didn't recognize Jesus at first. Mary Magdalene at the tomb thought he was the gardener. Only when he says her name does she know it's Jesus. On the afternoon of Easter Sunday, two of the disciples are walking and conversing with Jesus for quite a stretch, and they have no idea it's him. Only when they get to a house, in the breaking of the bread, shorthand for the Eucharist, are their eyes opened. We might be puzzled by this. How can these people who knew Jesus so well who had known him for years, not recognize him right away. As silly as it may sound, I think wine helps us to understand this. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't just coming back to life. It was a whole new way of being alive, of being human. His body was elevated and glorified. The same promise awaits us and our bodies, and we'll talk about that more in a future episode. For right now, though, I want to stay on this theme of transformation, because it lies at the heart of the Christian message. Remember a little earlier when we were talking about the whole image of the wedding feast? 
This is where it comes full circle. The transformation of Christ in his resurrected body is the template for every one of us. God wants that union with us, and he wants it so badly that he actually makes us like himself. Think about it. The gap between God and man is so vast, so infinite, how could there possibly be union between us? Well, that's why God himself, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being. He entered our world to bring us into his. Through his humanity, we can share in his divinity. In other words, he came to transform us. Some of the classic fairy tales touch on this. Think of Beauty and the Beast or the Frog Prince. The whole point is that they're ugly and unattractive. It takes someone to look past that and see the good and the beauty hidden deep within. That's a lot like the human race. After the fall, we were disfigured, and there seemed to be no way out. But God still saw his image and likeness, and he came not just to restore us to where we were, but to lift us even higher to make us even more beautiful, because now we have his very life, his grace, within us. So the Christian life isn't just putting lipstick on a pig. It's turning the pig into a prince. It's taking these ordinary grapes and making something that can just take your breath away. That's what happens when we die to ourselves. When we put aside our own selfish instincts and fleeting pleasures, and we decide to stop sinning and live for God. As St. Paul writes, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the whole process of being on that hillside, of struggling and suffering. Not in some masochistic way, but because all love is a form of suffering. True love isn't an emotion or a feeling. It's a choice to put the good of another ahead of ourselves, to die to ourselves and our own desires for the sake of another. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. We share in his passion, a word that means both suffering and love, when we die to ourselves and live for him. The very culture of wine reflects this. It brings people together, uniquely among all human beverages. There's something different and special about sharing a bottle together with friends. It's a foretaste of that heavenly wedding banquet. It lifts our spirits, opens us up, and fosters communion. You may have heard the saying, in vino veritas, in wine is truth. It doesn't mean that we get so drunk that we say things we shouldn't. That's a crass misunderstanding of the phrase. No, it means that wine elevates us onto a higher level where we speak more freely and easily, more comfortably, where we can speak the truth that sets us free. This brings us back to our friend Dom Perignon. Remember I mentioned that he's often considered the father of champagne? There's a great story behind that. But to appreciate it, we need to make a quick little detour into winemaking itself. I don't think the cellar master of Holvier would mind. In order to make wine, you add yeast to grape juice. The yeast converts the sugar in the juice into alcohol. In this process of fermentation, it emits carbon dioxide. Why does this matter? 
The Champagne region is about as far north as you can go while still being able to make excellent wine. The problem is that when the weather gets that cool, the juice doesn't have enough sugar in it to become alcohol. That would make weak and boring wine. So winemakers, like Dom Perignon, add sugar to the juice to prop up the alcohol level. Normally, this whole process takes place in big vats before bottling the wine. Well, the story goes that one of the monks had accidentally bottled the wine before the fermentation was finished. So the yeast was still eating the sugar, converting it into alcohol, and emitting carbon dioxide. The problem was that the CO2, which normally escaped from the open vat, was now trapped inside the bottle. Bubbles formed, and the pressure built up so much that the bottle started exploding. Dom Perignon assumed something had gone terribly wrong, until he drank this bubbly, exploding wine. And in the famous conclusion to the story, he's so thrilled by what he tastes that he runs up into the dining room where all the monks are in the middle of their silent meal and shouts out, come quickly, I'm drinking stars. The story itself is sadly apocryphal and likely came from a marketing campaign in the 19th century. But as the Italians say, se non è vero, è ben trovato. If it's not true, it should be. I mention this story because, as strange as it may sound, it reminds me of Easter morning. A little background. When Jesus died on Good Friday afternoon, his followers had to bury him quickly. Why? Because the Passover began at sundown, and no one could do any work after that until the Sabbath rest on Saturday was over. So on Sunday morning, the first chance they get, a small group of women who were devoted to Jesus came to the tomb to finish anointing his body. When they arrived and found the tomb empty, they immediately told the apostles. The apostles ran to see it for themselves and then never stopped telling anyone who would listen this incredible news, that Jesus who was dead is risen and alive. In fact, when they start proclaiming this amazing event to thousands of people, the crowds think that they're drunk on wine. They're just giddy with joy, and they don't care how ridiculous it sounds. They say, you're not going to believe this, but you have to, because it's true. In vino veritas. It's the ecstatic, crazy reaction of someone madly in love, who's willing to do anything, to look ridiculous, even to suffer and die, as the apostles did, for this burning love. It's the love of a couple on their wedding day the wedding feast that the living Lord invites each one of us to, to transform us, to join him in that union of love, to drink that good wine forever in his kingdom. That's the surprise and wonder of our faith that looks beyond appearances, behind the label, and discovers something totally unexpected. And if a poor monk buried in an obscure church in a tiny French village can help us understand that a little better, well, I'll drink to that. <laughs>